Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. Continuing with Delegate Daniel Walker out of the 51st District of the great state of West Virginia. Y'all know how much I love my home state. Uh, but now it's time for some grown folk talk on some tough issues. There's been a couple of very controversial bills. Uh, let's start with one that actually just got it, uh, some play in the U.S. Congress, but you've been trying to get it done in West Virginia. It's called the Crown Act. Um, it, it deals with a prejudice, but let's assume a wide spectrum of the prejudice comes out of ignorance. So let's deal with the ignorant. For people that just don't understand or don't know, or maybe they just haven't been exposed to different ethnicities, why is this such an important thing to folks, the Crown Act, natural hair care, these types of issues? How would you, when, when you're having these meetings in Charleston, I'm sure you've had to just sit down and explain it to somebody like, okay, this is what this really means. And this is what we're trying to change. How do you go about that? Well, what we, what we have to first look at is what the dark past has taught us. And when it came to natural hair and the black in the black and brown communities, it was always discriminatory. When we look back in the 1700s, there was a bill by Louisiana governor called the Tion Act. And a Tion is a hairdressing where you tie your hair up. And it was focused on freed black women. It was a group of white women who went to the governor who said, the exotic styles of hair that these women are wearing, they are bringing chaos to our husbands. We need this to stop. So the governor deemed this the Tion Law, where free Black women had to tie up their hair so they wouldn't be a distraction to others. But what they did in tying their hair, they embedded it. They bedazzled the scarves. They dyed the scarves. They put gold ornaments on the hair. And so that brought on some generational trauma. When you look at braiding, and we must understand that Black history didn't start with slavery, but in the United States of America, it's something that is very deemed where you see Black people in the oppression, right? So braiding was a style. It was, it was something that was cultural from Africa. And what these men and women started doing was braiding maps to the North in their hair, what they used their hair and the braiding for was to put seeds from their native land as they were moving from one plantation to another, or even as an indigenous servant or a freed person, they would embed the seeds in their hair so they can keep that as heirlooms. Fast forward, we started with the Afro, and that brought some political strange like why are we doing this? We got away from the European style of putting perms and relaxers and straightening hair. So we went through the 60s with the civil rights movement of Afros, and then we started transitioning things back. But as we learn history, the style started to come back again. So braiding, so we look at a French braid, have no problems with it. But when you start looking at locks, and Bantu knots and, and different type of protective styles, then that was deemed as being unprofessional. When you were going to an interview, you made sure that you didn't wear your natural hair or you wore a wig um, that you thought would be accepting to the person that was going to interview you. And after you got the job and you went through your 90 days, 
then you may have started a little bit at a time, start expressing yourself, whether that would be with the cornrow, which was like, what are you doing to your hair? Like, we prefer your hair the other way. Then the write-ups would come. And then if you went to micro braids, then it would be like, um, so are you going like to Jamaica on vacation? Like, why would you do that to your hair? And then it was like, can I touch your hair? Or, um, yeah, that's just, that's not what this office and what this corporation is about. And then it may even be, a highlight for a landlord who doesn't know what well, this person is coming in here with cornrows. Like, are they going to sell drugs? Um, what kind of people is going to be visiting um, the place that they want to lease to? And so those discriminatory things happen when you go into a business, even though you're going to sit at the restaurant, but you just need to use the restroom because maybe you were on a two and a half hour ride. You come in and you go, can I use the restroom? And they're like, mm, customers only. Well, we need a table. Mm, we're full. You need a reservation. So these are the things that we, and if you've never been through it, and what I've learned the first year that I introduced the Crown Act in West Virginia in 2019, when we opened it up and we wanted hair stories, it just didn't come from people of color. It came from people who have um, naturally curly hair. It came from people who were natural redheads. And it traumatized me more of the hidden jokes and the things that these folks went through with their hair. It, it, it came from white males who wanted longer hair during the 60s, right? And so then we had to make sure we had that seesaw of elevation and equity, Dying of hair and the natural way my hair grows from my scalp is not the same comparison. And so we had to educate in an open public forum. And the bill has never made it on any of the committee agendas. So I can never really have this conversation with my colleagues unless it was a student. Like we had the student in Beckley who was discriminated against. In the basketball game, his football coach had no problem with his locks, but his black basketball coach did. And that young man went into that locker room and tried to comb his hair out. And it wasn't, yes, I introduced the legislation, but when his mother went with the lobbyists to the Senate side and Senator Trump heard the pain and the exhaustion of this mother, he originated the bill in the Senate. That's who we are as mountaineers. Yeah. And for the people that say, well, businesses have a right to uh, say what they deem professional. OK, that's fair enough. But let's consider this. The United States military relaxed their standard on natural hair uh, in 2014, although they worked on that for a couple of years before that happened. They uh, released their restraints on locks in 2017 and they just redid it again last year in 2021 because they come to find out it's really really hard to get exact um, it's the military so they're like three quarter inch one and a quarter inch it's really hard to get locks in that exact thing so they did re they went back and revisited again uh last year uh if the military where it really is a life and death issue to make sure you have addressed an appearance i think we can do something with discrimination because again what's the point do you want to fight the hill over how somebody looks or do you want to get people jobs and by extension, freedom, because economic freedom is freedom. That's where I fall on that. And it's one of those things where, look, I didn't know not a whole lot about it. I grew up in the middle of West Virginia where we were, you know, 99% white because we had, you know, Chinese restaurant and that sort of thing that I didn't know either until I went in the military and now I have peers and then I had subordinates and I'd have female troops. And I found out like, man, it takes them two hours to get uniform appropriate to come to work every morning. And we taught, we... Let me ask you it this way. Is it one of those things where we talk about discrimination in such big terms? And we should because, you know, racism is a problem. Prejudice is a problem. There's a lot of this little everyday stuff that, like you said with that, if we just tell the human side of it, it's like, this is my experience. Hear me out on this. I think we could turn down the noise on a lot of this stuff and just connect on a human level. You'll still have the people who just want to be evil and, and don't want to give people a fair shot. But I think the vast majority of people, those stories would hit home, don't they? Of course they do. Um, and this is why we do the Crown Act rally every year in the legislature. I want to commend 
my colleagues who came down this particular session and listen. And at the moment, there was um, three high school students that were speaking their lived experience of the discrimination that they went through. And right after that, there was a young lady who was on a cheer competition team who spoke her truth. And you could see the pain, but the resiliency in them taking a stand of being comfortable in wearing their natural hair. And a lot of it is protective styles. So you can accept someone who wears a protective style if they are a cancer patient and they lose all their hair. We can accept them wearing a scarf or a headdress, right? We can accept them wearing a wig. But as an African-American woman, can you accept the diversity because I don't look like I have a certain illness? I do. And these protective styles keep me from being sicker than what I am, right? It's the years of relaxing your hair and having those harsh chemicals. Now there are studies that they can promote breast cancer a little bit faster in African-American women than anybody else in the U.S. So these are the things, there's science behind this. Um, and there's studies behind this. And there's real harm behind this. And it's time that we move forward. We continue our discussion with Delegate Danielle Walker of the West Virginia House of Delegates right after this on Hertel. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Um, another hot button issue, talking to a uh, delegate, the right honorable, because you're a sitting office holder, uh, Danielle Walker, appreciate your time today on this. Uh, a tough topic. We'll just touch on it briefly, though. But uh, education has been a lot of people's mind. There was an education bill that uh, went forward in West Virginia. It's let's call it what it is. It's dead identical to about 20 other states is because these are all kind of coming from the same places. The CRT debate got flopped over top of the whole thing because that's the buzzword one and that's the one that gets fundraising and that's the one that gets attention. Put this, let's do this like we did the hair thing though. Put it on a personal level though, because for folks that don't know, in the state of West Virginia, every eighth grader, including me, including everybody else that was in eighth grade, you have to take a semester of West Virginia history. All mm -hmm. right. Love it. It's called the Golden Horseshoe. I was robbed in 92, but let's not get into that. Um, when, when you deal with history, when I took West Virginia history, there just wasn't a lot. There, the hidden figures thing I didn't know about, even though I grew up an hour from there. Uh, the Hawks Nest Tunnel disaster. I bet a lot of people don't know about that. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of black men from the South purposely recruited without families that died on that mountain. Uh, the mines were the same way in a lot of cases back in the days, places like Welch down in the coal fields. There's a, some of it's dark, but it's a very rich history that doesn't get taught. But because they're legislating on the bill, and I'm, I'm just going to put it this way, part of my problem with the CRT legislation is you, legislation has to be black and white, and these folks can't even define what CRT is, pro and con. You're writing bills now where I think you're going to have a big problem teaching much of anything. Is that how it landed with you, too? Because you have a perspective that I don't have. You tell me. How should we be addressing these issues? Because I know for a fact, because I grew up in West Virginia and I came through West Virginian schools. They don't teach this stuff, and I doubt it's gotten a whole lot better. Uh, how do we make it better without having this nebulous legislation that's just going to kind of muddle the water on everything at best and harm things at worst? The best way that we can go through this is to lean on the professionals that are in the classroom, and that is our educators. And our educators have master's degrees in doctrine in the classroom. There is always an open line of communication. My family moved here in 2010. My oldest son, my late son, was an eighth grader. All of us learned that eighth grade history. What we did not learn 
was Katherine Johnson, Carter G. Woodson, the father of Black History Month, never came across that. We didn't learn about Booker T. Washington, Harper's Ferry. We did not know of the many festivals. We hadn't heard about the Osage community that's right here in Montegalia County. And so why do we want history to remain hidden? And what is that going to really do for the students of West Virginia? Presentation without presence is powerless. And we are all power. Now, when we speak about certain things of migration and immigration and slave trade and civil rights, even to modern day, and we speak about lynching, you, you can't forget about Emmett Till. And I do my due diligence, especially doing Black History Month, is to pick up, I just didn't pick up any Black history. I chose West Virginia Black history for a reason. And to have my friend, my colleague, a Republican from the Charleston area, Delegate Pack says, I learn something every time you post something. And it's on Twitter. So it's just one, two sentences. That's it. He said, and I've lived here all my life. I'm going to go back and take a ride through Charleston again. If we can start being open-minded, I don't want you to feel anything, but I don't want you to disregard the generational trauma. Most hurtful is removing books about Ruby Bridges Martin Luther King Jr. and Galileo from certain school libraries, I have a problem with that because that's the first persons that you use to quote. Katherine Johnson is an honorable American just as Robert C. Bird is. But you see Robert C. Byrd named on many hospitals all over roads, bridges. But Katherine Johnson had to hit the big screen for you to know her name, not even remember it. 36 things in the state of West Virginia with Robert C. Byrd's name on it for those of you keeping score at home. Talking to Danielle Walker, I, I want to ask you this question. It's a little indelicate, but I'm just going to phrase it to you the way you said it. Um, let me phrase it to you this way, um, because the response to this is I've heard it from friends on the right and the left, some of them, too. They say, well, this just makes it too uh, controversial. We want to have a colorblind society. We want to treat everybody equally. You had a quote when you were speaking to a crowd. It was actually during a rally back about two years ago. And I wanted to ask you about this because the way you phrased it, I want you to explain it to, to me and the folks in the audience as well. You said, and I'm paraphrasing it just a bit, you said um, the problem with being colorblind is if everybody's colorblind, then they'll never actually see me. What is it you meant by that, that they won't see you? It, because it sounds good. We want to live in a colorblind society. We want everybody to be equal. But what does that mean to you when you say, well, then they don't see me? Does that tie into all that history we were just talking about? It does. And it goes back. And I may get a little emotional. It goes back to being three and a half years old, when my mother and father sat me down and said I had three strikes against me. Now, please don't judge my parents because I love them dearly. Number one, you're black. Number two, you're a female. And number three, I'm sorry, baby, we are poor. I didn't use those things as an excuse. I didn't use those things to keep my head down. I used those three strikes to motivate me because my parents were realist, right? So that meant for every application, it asked about my race. How can we have a colorblind society? Whether I apply for a job, 
whether I'm getting a driver's license, it is a marker of who I am. Race. And so why, where does the color blindness come from? Now, many folks it can say that this is my religion. This is what's in the Bible. Well, then that's discriminatory also because not everyone practices a religion. Not everyone reads the Bible. It is my faith and I hold it near and dear to my heart. But when you say you want to be colorblind, do you blind out my natural hair? When you say you want to be colorblind, do you blind out my tattoos? When you say you want to be colorblind, do you take away my statute of being a six foot, 300 pound woman? Do you go colorblind if you see my sons walking into a store and you clutch your purse? Do you go colorblind when you see certain people wear certain clothes, listening to certain music? So when are we actually truly colorblind? We are human. So I need you to see me. I need you to see beyond this beautiful black skin that I was so graciously, graciously blessed to be in. I need you to see the mind. I need you to not only hear the words that's coming out my mouth, but I want you to understand them. I want you to be an active listener. I want us to work together. I don't want to hand out. I need a hand up at times, but just as I'm reaching my hand up for you to help me, my other hand is reaching for someone else to come to that same level. This is true equity, but we can't ask for diversity, equity, and inclusion if you're not seeing me. So I need you to see me, all of me. We continue our discussion with Delegate Danielle Walker of the West Virginia House of Delegates right after this on Hertel. Daniel Walker. Uh, so appreciate that. Just real quick, I want to end on a high note. Uh, it's not all fisticuffs in the West Virginia legislature. Um, it's your story, so I'll let you tell it. You got a bill passed that is very, very meaningful to you on a personal level. The Dimitri Walker blood program legislation, just real quickly in the time we got remaining, can you let folks know what that is? And a, a great moment of together. Uh, saw a lot of folks crying when they signed that thing, uh, both sides of the aisle, uh, including you. Uh, understandably, let folks know what that was real briefly and that uh, one of the great moments uh, of West Virginians coming together, let them know what that was. Exactly. Dimitri Walker is my late son who took his last breath on June 19, 2021, due to some complications to leukemia. Being an African-American, bone marrow was going to be our next step forward. This was not the first time Dimitri had a bone marrow biopsy. He was diagnosed in less than a month and died. So I wanted to make sure that we brought awareness to every West Virginia. So House Bill 4631 was signed by Governor Justice on March 28th, and it is the bone marrow and peripheral blood stem donation program that will be an online brochure that will be um, monitored by the National Marrow Bone Donor Program. That's where we're going to get all the information from. We will make sure we have all the stakeholders there. This is a, a new progressive form of health care here in our wonderful state where we have so many wonderful health care facilities, people learning about health care, and this is keeping my sons, my king, life and legacy alive. And I am so humbly honored that my colleagues stood with me, by me, because they heard and they seen our story. Thank you.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. I I keep saying it and I'm guilty of it and I kind of I talked about this on social media a little bit today and I got into a conversation privately with somebody who I I, I greatly respect who is an expert on the field of race that I go to mm. on things like this privately. And I was like, you know, I keep saying this and I believe it. Uh, it's not that I don't believe it that you know we don't have the conversations about race that we should have in America, but I I've kind of come to a realization a little bit of like. It's almost like an advanced course in college. We don't have the prerequisites. People haven't done the required reading. There's not a common basis of knowledge to have a productive conversation about that. Um, and you brought it up before. is like, um, I think it was John McWalter said, you know, if it's one side yelling and the other side not saying anything, that's not a conversation. Um, can you can you expand on that just for a second? Because you're another one of those people I go to. And I was like, hey, you know, you tell me how this should go. That's where I'm at it on is like, I don't think we have a common basis. I don't think we even have the right vocabulary to discuss this. I don't think we understand our shared history and how we got here. Am I off base on any of that? No, you're not. I, I think one of the problems um, that we have really is we talk about the word conversation, but in some ways we don't really mean conversation. And I think actually if we want to get towards uh, and moving forward in, towards racial reconciliation, we really have to have a conversation. But a conversation means that each side is probably going to hear things that they don't want to hear. And um, I think that they still have to kind of remain engaged in discussion. Um, this is an issue that is always going to bring a lot of kind of dredge up a lot of bad feelings. And to me, the only way out of this is through it. And to do that, we have to have an honest discussion. And I think, you know, the other part of that is we have to also be able to see each other really as having a shared destiny. Um, we're Americans together. Um, we may come from different blocks, but at the basis, we are who we are. And I think one of the problems today is that we act as if um, the other side comes from another planet. And as long as we think that way, we don't think that there is something that grounds us together. We're really just never going to move forward. I wonder, and this is going to be a touchy area, so you stop me if I get too far afield here, but okay. I just want to, I just, I, I got to talk about this, you know, because it's just, um, we, we cover it and we write about it, but we don't talk about it. I know we need to talk about things like great replacement theory. I know we need to address the wide spectrum of prejudice, especially when the prejudice starts turning into out and out racism. I know we need to nip those things in the bud. I almost feel like, especially on social media, we get to where we start talking about things like the theory of it and the ideology of it and the history of it. 
And we almost use that as a skimming a rock across the pond where it's like, okay, well, we've, we've dressed that and addressed that now, but it's almost like we just use that as a skimming of the layer and we don't actually get into what's going on underneath it because we can go, oh, well, it's this bad theory. And if we just got rid of all the media outlets with all the bad theories, that's going to solve this problem. And I don't think we ever address the fact that, no, this is a human heart problem. This is a broken soul problem. This is beyond legislative and this is beyond policy. That's where my frustration is starting to come with this. Is is that off base or is that something that's shared by other folks, do you think? No, I, I think it is. I, I, you know, one of the problems I think has been that we see this as solely a political problem. And it's not simply a political problem. And where we see this kind of people engaging in these activities there's a lot of things going on here. Some of that is economics. Some of that is people who feel disconnected from society. And part of it is also, as you would say, a heart problem. There's this sense of kind of twisted um, ethics and, and twisted emotions. And this is really a time period where we need to see other institutions um, stepping up and, and taking a part, um, in, especially in civil society, especially the church, um, that need to be able to reach out um, and be able to kind of build bridges, especially with people who may seem like they are very much loners, because there had to be, you know, with this shooter, you have to wonder, was someone paying attention to what they were what they were looking at on online um, were they someone that had people to talk to it, it doesn't seem it seems like we have the society where we don't really pay attention to one another until something like this happens and by that time it's it's almost too late yeah talking to our friend Dennis Saunders um, I thought back to some other shootings we had the Charleston church shooting really always bothers me because he came in and sat down like he was there for a while. He talked to those people. He looked. He was there for a Bible study. Yeah. Like, like, you know, you know, the, the brokenness to be able to sit there, like it's one thing to go in and just see people as targets. I I know that's dehumanizing, but I can kind of get my head around that, but like somebody to do something like that. And then you have this individual who by his own admission, if we take the words that he wrote down um, as fact, and I have no reason to discount them, he took the last two years and purposefully stewed and marinated himself in this hatred stuff. I know everybody wants to go, we need to do something so this never happens again. I don't know that there's a whole lot we can do about that. Because if you've got somebody that just wants to silo themselves off from the world like that, and then they eat up all that hate, and then they make a plan like this, and I know there was the mental health flags that that came down, and we can talk about that in a minute. But as far as the radical the radicalization part of this where his prejudice turned to outright hatred, which turned into racism, which turned into murderous intent. I I just don't know that there's a whole lot we can do about that. And, and is it, it's like, it's taboo for us to say, there's not a lot we can do about that, but that's what it feels like. Is that, do you feel differently? I mean, I don't know how you solve that problem. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that I, that I don't think that there is one simple solution. I mean, Obviously, whenever things like this happen, there are people who say, you know, if we just had better gun laws, this would go away. And I'm not opposed to that, but I don't know if that would be the thing. And, you know, I, I think part of it also is that as, as a society, we're not good at dealing with the problem of evil. Um, and... I don't want to go as far as to say that some people are just plain evil, but there are people that engage in evil acts and we, and we need to kind of, kind of deal with that. There is this thing out there and sometimes it is not so easily solved. There's no way, you know, it's not always a public policy issue. I don't know if I would go as far as to say that there's nothing we can do, but, but when you're dealing with something like this, I think it's hard. I think it's very difficult to find something to to do. 
I'll, I'll ask this question as a philosophical question because I kind of know the answer, but I think we need to address it. Why is it that when people, you know, if you don't want to go so far as to say people are evil or inherently evil, although I, I believe they can be, let's just say they embrace evil or they've made a decision to be evil. Why does that always seem to manifest with things like race right off the bat? That seems to always be the, the bottom of the spiral when people go down that road. Why, why is that? Because it's easy to deal with the other. It's easy to try to make the other the bad person, whether that's um, someone who's black, whether it's someone who's gay. That's kind of what it is all about, is that there's something going on with them. They may feel somehow deficient in some way or things are not going well in their life and pushing it off towards someone who is different from them is the easiest way to kind of assay, assay your hurt feelings. So I think that's what it's all about. We talk about it all the time on our show. You know, human nature is undefeated. And unfortunately, that's usually in a bad connotation that human nature is undefeated. However, uh, when we were going through the list of the victims here, I was struck by a couple of things. This is a very tight-knit neighborhood. It is a, you know, lower, lower middle class and below neighborhood. They talked about this uh, particular grocery store being, you know, kind of the only grocery store in kind of a food desert. I was struck when they listed the names. Every single one of them uh, went to such and such church. Uh, the one uh, lady, the one of the younger people killed was 32 years old. She was there helping her brother during a bone marrow transplant, just happened to be there for, the, you know, stories like this. We know about the security guard now. Um, again, because you went through this in many, Minneapolis and St. Paul and that area, all the different things that have gone on. Talk about when the news cameras stop, you know, in three months, two months, whenever it is, and the cameras leave. What's the work that has to go into a community to start trying to put it back together after one of these major news events? Because you've lived through that two or three times now in the last few years, unfortunately. Talk about that because that's when the real healing and work of, okay, what's our community after this? That's when that work really starts, isn't it? It is. I think some of it's going to have to be um, mental health care professionals that are going to have to be on hand. Um, part of it is probably doing a lot of honest talk about race because obviously this is not a surprise that it's still a problem. And, you know, the, the nature of this crime where someone literally traveled, was it two or three hours to go to do this? Um, that's a deep well of hatred. And so we have to kind of talk about that. And I think that that has to still happen. Um, I think other communities, communities around that area, um, have to keep checking in, doing whatever, creating relationships maybe with the, with churches in that area, um, because the people who were live in those neighborhoods, um, obviously the the victim, the family of victims, but also people who are um, just living in that community who may have known them or, or, or however, are all going to need help for months, if not years. Um, down the road. And I, I think the one thing that really does concern me, and this might seem weird, is, um, and you just talked about it, is what's going to happen to that supermarket? Um, because a lot of the areas where African Americans live tend to be food deserts. Um, you know, one of the things that happened here in Minneapolis um, is we had a few. Um, grocery stores that were um, torched in, in different communities. And that did leave literally a food desert um, for a certain amount of time. Uh, one of the um, stores, um, as they were remodeling uh, two of their locations that had been damaged, they um, had buses that would take them to another of their locations nearby. Um, and they also made a, a, a deliberate um, intent to stay in those communities. Um, that's kind of a question I have is I hope that this supermarket chain will, will make a commitment to stay and um, continue to serve that community. Yeah. Tops is uh, they, we went through the list of the local communities and charities. You can go back on the show notes. 
from Tuesday's show. Uh, we have a links there, uh, charity stuff in that community, directly into that community. It's one of the things Top said they were running shuttle buses to other, because obviously it's still a crime scene, so they couldn't open it if they yeah. want to. Uh, they were running shuttle buses to other places from there because I think they said something like 80% of the customers there walk there, which is not uncommon in neighborhoods like that. Yeah, so it's a it's great not. point that you raised. Uh, Dennis Saunders joining us. This is a grown folk talk. It's a tough talk, but that's why we bring Dennis on because we can ask these hard questions. And Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. I'm very excited about this new face on the program, but somebody I'm very excited to talk to. He is the editor-in-chief of The Voice down in Atlanta. He's going to tell you all about that in just a minute. Donnell Suggs, how are you, sir? Good morning, brother. I'm fine. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I love having you. This is one of the reasons I do social media. I get to meet new people, and now I've got an excuse to talk to them. So great mm -hmm. to talk to you. Let's start big picture for a second, because I had something happen back when we were covering the midterms. I was talking to one of our regular election folks that does the data and stuff. I think politically, culturally, demographically, economically, any of those major narrative stories that we're covering nationally, and of course those show up at election time, I find Atlanta to just be one of the real fascinating places to watch in the country. I'm an outsider, you're an insider, you're there, you're right there. Does it feel that way to you folks that you really do have a microcosm of a lot of the wider issues going on and we got them all right there in Atlanta right now? You're, you're, you're spot on. I think what's special about Atlanta is it really isn't Georgia. What Atlanta is, is the best of what America can be with, with the ethnicities and different cultures. And also sort of kind of what happens when one, a city grows so fast that it has to just kind of be in the spotlight, even if it doesn't want to be. Um, I always tell people Atlanta and Georgia are two different things. Atlanta is the capital city, but it, it's, it's not nothing else in Georgia. So politically, it's like nothing else in Georgia. And now it feels like it's like nothing else in America. And that's really special. That's really special to be a part of that right, as, at this time. Yeah. And your own story fits directly into that. You're actually a Brooklyn guy. Uh, you've sure. been there for quite a while now. So, you know, no shame in saying you're an Atlanta original native, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But you're one of them. Take your own story. Walk people through that. You came to Atlanta. You're part of that story. You came into that community. You're raising your family there now. What got you there and what makes you stay there and work? 16 years in Atlanta, 17 years this June, met my wife here. My son was born here. My, my newspaper career really blossomed here. I moved here with the opportunity to work for a lot of smaller black newspapers because Atlanta still had those. Whereas in New York, there might be a few, but it, just, it was just harder to break into the industry as a young man without a ton of references outside of college newspapers. So Atlanta gave me my start. And in the meantime, in 2006, the Atlanta continues to change. So I'm kind of going along for that ride. And um, I just think that uh, Georgia as a whole, but Atlanta in particular, is that story for a lot of people. They moved here from Detroit and Chicago and Philly, et cetera, New York, of course, New Jersey. And we got to start maybe a different industry or we got a fresh start in the industry that we love in Atlanta, at least at that time, because it wasn't as crazy as it is now as far as um, 8 million people. When I got here, might have been like five. And it was still like, oh, people saying, where are you going? Atlanta. Where? Okay, why? And now it's like, oh, where are you going? Atlanta. Oh, of course. And that's the change. So I think my story is very similar to a lot of people. That is just a place where you can get a fresh start or get the start you were looking for. And um, that's definitely what happened to me. Yeah, Donnell Suggs, he's the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. You just mentioned it. You got your start in newspapers and writing. We've been talking a lot and we covered on our show and when we have reporters on always talk to him. We've, we really, it is a big thing in our country, this dynamic, the nationalization of media, even though Atlanta is a major city, there's still local reporting. That's really, really, really important. We just saw this with the Santos story in New York, local people had it, national media ignored it. There's lots of examples of this, even in a major Metro like Atlanta, one of our fastest growing, biggest Metro, the diversity of it, the size of it, the way it's growing, the politics of it that we've seen in the last couple elections Local media, even in a big city like that, really, really matters still, doesn't it? It does. It does. You're not going to get the stories about um, local politicians. You're not going to get the stories about city council. You're not going to get the stories about the school districts from a national media standpoint unless something major happens, i.e. Herschel Walker, Senator Reverend Warnock. When they got down to the nitty gritty, then, of course, by the time they debate in Savannah, 
I'm elbow to elbow with CBS, CNN, ABC, and Fox News. I didn't see any of those people on the campaign trail in the early going when he first announced it, which I get it. I get it. It's not a natural story yet. Then once it becomes one, now I'm like in a scrum with like Fox News. And it's and it's great. For me, it's great. I know local people don't like to have you know, the nationals kind of come in and bombard. But because we were on board from day one, I'm treated just like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal when there's a scrum. As a matter of fact, maybe even better in some cases in regards to Warnock's campaign because they saw me when he was doing church parking lots on the west side of Atlanta with like 25 people outside. So when there's 2,000, when there's 25,000 people in Collins Park and President Obama's coming, they still see me. So local news is very important because we have the relationships that, that form when it isn't the coolest story in America. So when it becomes the coolest story in America, we're still there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because this is a part, this is why they're just banging on the media. And I've tried to quit saying media. I try to distinguish news media, broadcast media. Those are very different things. Social you just media. These are still people and these are still relationships, even though it's a big business. So, yeah, you need to build that relationship with a CBS News, a Fox News, an MSNBC, whoever the big national carriers is. They're like, oh, well, we know we can go to this guy and get good information. We can go to this outlet or we can go to this specific reporter. People can do that with their social media, though, too, even if they're other parts of the country. Start following specific reporters, specific outlets. That's actually how you start making media better instead of just bashing the nameless, faceless, the media, right? Please, I think it's great that we separate media, which is a form of communication from journalists, which is a professional person that knows how to deliver a message. Just like I can sing, but it's not well. I don't want to call myself a singer just because I sang a song in the shower this morning. You shouldn't call yourself a journalist if you're just out there writing something down on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. So that's okay, but that's a form of media. Just like my singing is a form of noise. <laughs> that's a form of media and that's okay. So I think the locals are, our jobs are so much more important now because there's so many people who can get a message out. It might not necessarily be a good one or even true. So you need to have that, so that local media there, that source that you can trust and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm just going to check AtlantaVoice.com or I'm going to check Daniel's Twitter feed because he's, he's usually involved in that stuff. And that's happened a bunch of times, especially during um, the campaign. Yeah, Donnell Suggs, he's the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. Let's talk about The Voice for a second because mm. there's a long history of um, specific newspapers in America. And of course, newspapers are now more digital-minded, so it turns to black newspapers. Other ethnic groups had their own newspapers. This is a long tradition that kind of sort of dropped off in the last few years. But there's folks like you, I know, in my home state, uh, even as non-racially diverse as West Virginia can be, we have Black by God, things like this. There seems to be a movement back towards this using the new technology with the old ideas. Why is it so important for these people groups, whether it's a black group or whatever, to have their own voice in their own media? Because like we talked with local media, there's some stories that you can just cover that way that nobody else can and I think you just said it best. Not that a white reporter from the New York Times couldn't come to Atlanta and tell a story about a lady with a, fly, a flower shop in College Park, Georgia. Not saying that he or she couldn't do that, but would they do that? I think local media in West Virginia, Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Tribune, for example, one of my favorite black newspapers, Amsterdam News, one of my favorite black newspapers in, Atlanta, uh, in New York, Atlanta Voice, et cetera. I think we have a beat on some of that more ground level stuff that you still need. And in the case of websites like uh, Word in Black, um, there, there are websites that are saying, hey, listen, let's get these black newspapers together. Let's get online. Let's make, it a, let's make a digital front and get the word out still because I think it's still important that we tell our own stories still. We were doing that in the, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s because we couldn't get into main, mainstream media. And then once we began to do that, just like in college and sports as well, well, then maybe I don't need to write for the Atlanta Voice. I can write for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And there are some great journalists there. I don't care what color they are. But in the same token, I'm at a Clayton County school talking to someone at a warming station in Jonesboro that no one else would care about because they don't. it's not on their beat. Whereas with me, it's more local, so I better get down there. And you end up, getting you end up being able to tell really good stories. So I feel like the push towards black journalism i think it's 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 a real thing and even though we are a lot of i just came from a major newspaper the atlanta business chronicle is a major news it's the second largest paper in the state of georgia and it's the, i feel my money i feel like it's the most important because we talk about development and business i was there 
when the opportunity came to run the black newspaper in town, I jumped at it because I felt like it was important to be able to continue to tell our stories. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.